Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. Scott Fitzgerald, at the age of only 24, had become a familiar figure on the jazz age scene. This side of paradise had sold a remarkable 20,000 copies. His short stories were appearing frequently in the best slick magazines. And his personal life, gay, reckless, and defiant, was serving as a model to a whole generation of young people. Scott Fitzgerald was endowed by nature with a gift that very few writers are able to acquire. That is the sense of living in history. It was as if all his story described a big dance to which he had taken the really top girl. And as if he stood at the same time outside the ballroom. A little Midwestern boy with his nose to the glass, wondering how much the tickets cost and who paid for the music. This was F. Scott Fitzgerald, a biography in sound, produced, transcribed by NBC News. I'm Kenneth Banghart, and that music, there's no doubt about it, that's from the 20s, the golden razzle-dazzle 20s of the flapper, the hip flask, and the raccoon coat. As the years roll by, that music becomes a little fuzzy and frayed at the edges. And so does memory, for that matter. But there's a way to recapture the essence of that era, to savor the giddy ecstasy of a lost generation turning its back on the old order to hew another path in the cultural wilderness. All you have to do is open a novel or a short story by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and there it is. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Some called him the golden hero of the golden 20s. And in a way, he was. But more to the point, he was also one of its most important observers. He contributed to that era a fast, freewheeling brand of life and siphoned off the essence to be distilled on the printed page as an imaginative but accurate account of how it had been and how it had felt. All you have to do is open a volume of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and there it is, the feel of a fabulous decade. There was music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. Some lines from Fitzgerald's novel, The Great Gatsby. The man with the book, actor Everett Sloan. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched his guests diving from the tower of his raft or taking the sun on the hot sand of his beach while his two motorboats slit the waters of the sound drawing aquaplanes over cataracts of foam. By seven o'clock, the orchestra has arrived. The last swimmers have come in from the beach now and are dressing upstairs. The cars from New York are parked five deep in the drive, and already the halls and salons and verandas are gaudy with primary colors 
and hair bobbed in strange new ways, and shawls beyond the dreams of Castile. The bar is in full swing, and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside until the air is alive with chatter and laughter and casual innuendo and introductions forgotten on the spot and enthusiastic meetings between women who never knew each other's names. The lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun, and now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music, and the opera of voices pitches a key higher. Laughter is easier minute by minute, spilled with prodigality, tipped out at a cheerful word. Already there are wanderers, confident girls who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable, become for a sharp, joyous moment the center of a group, and then, excited with triumph, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices and color under the constantly changing light. Suddenly, one of these gypsies, in trembling opal, seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for courage, unmoving her hands like Frisco, dances out alone on the canvas platform. A momentary hush. The orchestra leader varies his rhythm obligingly for her, and there is a burst of chatter as the erroneous news goes around that she is Gilda Gray's understudy from the Follies. The party has begun. in the 20s, as we look back on it now, there on the dimming horizon of recall, often seem to be one party after another. If we didn't go to them ourselves, we heard about them, or, like as not, read about them in a Fitzgerald story. But what about Fitzgerald himself? What was he like? Almost everyone agreed he was as handsome as a matinee idol, but beyond that, there were many variations, many voices, many viewpoints. Scott was probably the most charming man that I've ever known. He loved to uh, talk. He was a man full of life, really. Ideas occurred to him with great rapidity. Uh, some of them good, some of them bad. I suppose, in a way, a manner of speaking, he is, or was, the last of the romantics. He was not only almost too handsome, but he had great vivacity. He was very well informed, and, of course brilliantly red. He had curly hair and was one of the first to wear the crew cut. He had a very cold blue eye. So blue that it was almost green. His lips were thin, bloodless. His mouth always looked as dry as a bone. He thought that money was uh, to spend. And uh, he did spend it. Scott knew he was going to be a writer. There was no boasting about it. He just had the feeling in him. Yes, he did have that feeling. Almost from his childhood days in St. Paul, Minnesota, Fitzgerald knew he was going to write. A companion of those boyhood days was Cecil Reed, later to become a St. Paul insurance man. I grew up with Scott from the year 1907 or 8, and was a very close friend of his uh, from that time through the First World War. Even in those days, uh, Scott was a great leader and organizer in any group that he was associated with. I, I remember very well his organizing our 11-year-old football team, which he starred as left halfback. And I'm not so sure, but that his first play was not produced in my third-floor playroom. 
During the summertime, I suppose he spent most of his weekends with me out at White Bear Lake. Mother would uh, put six, five or six army cots out on the front porch, and any of my friends were welcome to spend the night. I can well remember lying awake talking to Scott as to our futures. Of course, at that age, our futures went very little beyond college days, and uh, Scott uh, planned to go to Princeton. He knew what club he wanted to join at Princeton, and he hoped to write a show for the Triangle Club at Princeton. And it's rather interesting that he he accomplished all three of these things. Unfortunately, he was never able to act in uh, the Triangle productions of his because uh, he was never scholastically eligible. I guess no man is in a better position to know that than John Biggs, Jr. Today, he's chief judge of the Third Judicial Circuit. In the time around 1913, he was Scott Fitzgerald's roommate. I think probably as a student, uh, he was not a great success. Uh, First of all, he never studied anything outside of English. He used to attend his English classes uh, very, very assiduously. And he, of course, had the advantage of being a superb writer and could get very high marks on his themes and theses and things of that sort. However, his knowledge of spelling and punctuation was almost rudimentary. I hate to say that, but I really think it's true. Uh, So his papers used to come back usually with an A- instead of an A+, with some rather astringent remarks, usually by the professor who had corrected them as to why in the world didn't he learn some uh, spelling. On the other side of the curriculum, uh, history, for example, was a subject in which he was not greatly interested. And uh, I doubt if he ever cracked a history book, as the saying goes. And, of course, uh, he would invent uh, his history uh, for an examination as he went along. And some of it was startling, and I think probably better than the original. But the professors, particularly Professor Hall at Princeton, took an exceedingly dim view of of, uh, history, uh, delivered extemporaneously. Of course, the time Fitzgerald failed to lavish on his subjects was not wasted, not from his point of view. He began to write for the campus undergraduate publications and for the campus dramatic society, the Triangle Club. As New York advertising executive Robert Beekner recalls, I can think of several stories that appeared in this uh, side of paradise that I, I believe happened, probably had been embellished by him. Uh, The one favorite one that Princeton men obviously love to tell is at one uh, scene in the Triangle Club, which is the amateur undergraduate show at Princeton, uh, he had sitting in the front row of the show about six of the most disreputable-looking tramps that he could find. And on the stage, in a pirate scene, the uh, pirate mentioned Skull and Bones. And Skull and Bones, being a very secret society at Yale, so secret that the members are supposed to leave the room when Skull and Bones is mentioned. So at the word Skull and Bones from the stage, these four tramps got up from the front row and walked out of the theater. Roommate John Biggs remembers even more personally those days with Scott Fitzgerald in the Triangle Club. He wrote many lyrics 
before the various triangle shows. And his lyrics were extremely good. Almost professional. In fact, I would say they were professional in, in quality. I remember that in 1917, a friend of mine uh, named Frederick Bonefalk of New York and I wrote a triangle club play called Safety First. Uh, I think the less said about that particular play, probably the better. But Fitzgerald did the lyrics for it, and the lyrics were really very good indeed. Princeton at that time did not have the McCarter Theater, and all of the rehearsals took place in a rather large uh, room called the Auditorium. There was no gallery, and we used to have to put our lights up on a light tower. And during the latter stages of the rehearsal, Fitzgerald and I used to sit on that light tower and quarrel bitterly as to whether the audience was laughing at his lyrics or the lines written by Freddie Bonefalk and myself. In retrospect, I have no doubt that his lyrics were far superior to any lines that I have ever written. Another recollection of the Triangle Club, and again, Judge Biggs. Fitzgerald made up magnificently as a woman, uh, which was an odd business because he really was totally lacking in any effeminate or really feminine characteristics. But when he had been padded and spliced out in the proper places, he really was phenomenally good-looking. And they used to take stills for these triangle shows, still pictures by way of advertisement. And they took one of Fitzgerald sitting on a sort of a pedestal. He was quite startlingly handsome and showed a good deal of cheesecake. And uh, that picture was included in the stills, which I left around my room at my father's house. My mother came up and saw this particular picture of Fitzgerald and decided that her son was associating with evil companions tore it into a great many pieces and throw it in a wastepaper basket when she suddenly realized that it was a picture of Fitzgerald, so she dug the pieces out and the poor lady spent several afternoons gluing them together on a board to preserve this picture. It was a good life there at Princeton, despite the threat of borderline graves. And despite the predictions of cynics, it was a chronic illness that forced Fitzgerald out of school in 1917. Then, after a quick recovery, he found himself in the Army, a wartime second lieutenant stationed at Montgomery, Alabama. It was there he met Zelda Sayer, his future wife. She was very beautiful in an unusual way. That's Gerald Murphy, longtime friend of the Fitzgeralds in New York and on the Riviera. She had rather a, a very powerful hawk-like expression very beautiful features, not classic, and extremely penetrating eyes, and a very beautiful figure, and she moved beautifully. She had a beautiful voice, as some, and I suppose most Southern women do have. She had a slight Southern accent. She had a great sense of her own appearance, and wore dresses that were very and uh, very graceful, and her sense of the color that she should wear was, was very keen. She had a great head of tousled hair, which was extremely beautiful, neither blonde nor brown. And um, I always thought that uh, 
it was remarkable that the, her favorite flower was, uh, was a peony. They happened to grow in our garden, and uh, whenever she came to see us, she would take a great bunch of them and do something with them and pin them on her bodice, and they somehow were expressive of her. Her mind worked uh, in a most interesting way. She almost never said anything indifferent, or certainly nothing ever silly. And her angle of uh, vision and her perception was very personal. After the war, Fitzgerald never went overseas, came his engagement to Zelda, broken off when Scott returned to civilian life and failed as an advertising writer in New York. Now it was home to St. Paul and a somewhat skeptical family. It was there, as newspaper man Dick Washington recalls, that work went forward on the revision of a rejected first novel, a book retitled This Side of Paradise. It was a difficult job, made no easier by a family which couldn't quite see writing as a serious profession. Dick Washington. During this period, he was not allowed any spending money. And I used to see him practically every evening because we would go over to the corner drugstore and have Coca-Cola and cigarettes. And in those conversations, I knew what he was thinking about and what his hopes and plans were for this novel. He hoped more than anything that it would be successful because he was in love with this girl who lived in Montgomery, Alabama. And it was rather a Cinderella story because he wasn't sure of what the novel would do, whether it would be even be accepted. And when it finally was accepted, he was in ecstasy, you might say. And I remember very well his mailing the manuscript to Scribner's in New York. And it, he fondled it like a child. He said, this is my future right here, or it isn't, one way or the other. And then I remember how elated he was when he received a check, $5,000 advance royalties, for the novel. And I happened to be going by, and he ran out the door waving this check. And I knew what it meant to Scott. He left the next day. He couldn't pack fast enough to get on the train to go down to see his future wife in Montgomery. This Side of Paradise was published in March of 1920. Scott and Zelda, their earlier quarrels forgotten, were married on April 3rd, and then began a round of parties that were soon to become their trademark. But parties take money, and Scott Fitzgerald needed an agent to sell his work. Here's Harold Ober, who became not only his agent, but a close personal friend. The first time I saw Scott Fitzgerald was in the uh, autumn of 1919. He came uh, to my office with a letter from Max Perkins, Scribner's. Max had told me about his uh, forthcoming book, The Side of Paradise, which is coming out the next year. And Max thought that Scott would be able to write stories for some of the magazines that would pay more money than uh, Scribner's and Smart Set, to whom he'd sold a couple of stories. Scott came in one day. He was a very good-looking young man. And uh, he looked to me about 16 years old. And we talked about writing. And uh, he told me he thought he could write stories that the Saturday Evening Post would buy. About uh, a few weeks later, he brought in a story 
called Head and Shoulders, which I sold to the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, they paid $400 for it. It was a good price for a first story at that time. In the next uh, five months, he wrote six stories, all of which I sold to the Post. Uh, they raised his price, and uh, just ten years from then, they were paying him $4,000 a short story. The short story sold well, and so did This Side of Paradise. The nation almost overnight had discovered a new literary talent of major proportions. And just what it was that readers were finding has been pinned down for all time by Malcolm Cowley, author, critic, and Princeton classmate. Scott Fitzgerald was endowed by nature with a gift that very few writers are able to acquire. That is the sense of living in history. Manners and morals were changing all through his life, and he tried in his books to make a record of the changes. He wrote, for example... By 1927, a widespread neurosis began to be evident, faintly signaled like a nervous beating of the feet by the popularity of crossword puzzles. That is pure Fitzgerald. He was haunted by time, as if he wrote in a room full of clocks and calendars. He made lists by the hundred, including lists of the popular songs, the football players, the top debutantes, with the types of beauty they tried to cultivate, the hobbies and the slang expressions of a given year. He felt that all these names and phrases belonged to the year and helped to reveal its momentary color. After all, he said in his story, any given moment has its value. It can be questioned in the light of after events, but the moment of beauty was there. Fitzgerald lived in the drama of his own great moments, but he also stood aside from them and reckoned their causes and consequences. He was a romantic actor playing a part, but he was also an audience that kept a cold eye on the actor's performance. That is his doubleness, or irony, and it is one of his distinguishing marks as a writer. He was a man of the 1920s who took part in the ritual orgies of the time, but he also kept a secretly detached position, regarding himself as a pauper living among millionaires, an Irishman among Sassanacs, and a sullen peasant among the nobility. He said that his point of vantage was the dividing line between two generations, pre-war and post-war. Always he cultivated a double vision. In his novels and stories, he was trying to present the glitter of life in the Princeton eating clubs, on the north shore of Long Island, in Hollywood, and on the French Riviera. He surrounded his characters with a mist of admiration, and at the same time he kept driving the mist away. He said that he liked to know where the milk is watered and the sugar is sanded. The rhinestone passed for the diamond and the stucco for stone. It was as if all his story described a big dance to which he had taken, as he said in the poem, the really top girl. And as if he stood at the same time outside the ballroom. A little Midwestern boy with his nose to the glass, wondering how much the tickets cost and who paid for the music.
Yes, Fitzgerald's was a rare talent. But to the growing exasperation of his friends and admirers, things kept interfering with his writing. Things like parties. And things like an incident Robert Beekner will never forget. I was on the board of trustees of our club, and we, at that time, asked prominent graduates of our club to come down and talk to the underclassmen. And I asked Scott to come down, and he accepted with a great deal of pleasure. Well, it was a grim afternoon for me, because I got down to Princeton about 3 o'clock, and Scott was driving down from New York, and he was, as he would, stopping at every speakeasy on the way and reporting into me. I am now in Jersey City. I am now in Newark. I've gotten to Rawway. I've gotten to Metuchen. And by the time he arrived at the club, at about 7 o'clock, he was uh, pretty exuberant. But despite that, uh, after dinner, we went up to the library of the club, and Scott sat on the back of a chair and talked as brilliantly and perhaps sentimentally about Princeton and what he owed it and what he'd gotten out of it uh, as I've ever heard in my life. He regretted tremendously the fact that he hadn't graduated. He regretted that he hadn't fulfilled the great potentials that he had, but he said that it was the happiest, the most uh, promising, uh, most informative, and the best training that he'd ever had in his life. And he really had the undergraduates, I remember, almost in tears because he spoke so beautifully and so sentimentally about a place that he felt he had neglected and uh, he had fallen down on what he owed the university. This was F. Scott Fitzgerald. We'll continue after a brief pause for station identification. Scott Fitzgerald, at the age of only 24, had become a familiar figure on the jazz age scene... This side of paradise had sold a remarkable 20,000 copies. His short stories were appearing frequently in the best slick magazines. And his personal life, gay, reckless, and defiant, was serving as a model to a whole generation of young people bent on remolding the world closer to their heart's desire. In spite of this fame, though, there was a remarkably unselfish side of Fitzgerald his interest in discovering new literary genius. And among those he encouraged was a young fellow named Ernest Hemingway. Again, Gerald Murphy. Scott had gotten to know Ernest Hemingway, who was an unknown writer at the time, but uh, was known to be writing. And he felt such a strong admiration for the book of Ernest Hemingway's that had just come out, his first uh, collection of short stories called In Our Time, that um, he wanted everyone to read it. He gave us the first copy we had of the Ernest Hemingway stories. Uh, he wasn't satisfied with uh, until everybody that knew read it. When The Sun Also Rises, which Ernest was working on, came along, Scott felt even more strongly because it was a novel. He felt so 
strongly about that. That uh, he turned uh, to Scribner's, who were his publishers, and called their attention to this book. As I recall his telling us about it, Scribner's hesitated to publish anything that was uh, appeared to be as high-powered as uh, Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises. Scott was irritated and impatient at that and intolerant of it and uh, took up the cudgels and... Uh, he was at that time, I think, dealing with uh, Max Perkins, who was a great friend and admirer of his. And uh, he told us of a famous cablegram, which he finally sent uh, after Scribner's showed a reluctance to publish Ernest Hemingway, in which he issued an ultimatum. All that I recall of it was that it ended or else. Whether that cable was the prime reason or not is obscured by now, but the record shows Hemingway soon had a New York publisher, and the publisher was Scribner's. By now, the Fitzgeralds had a daughter to support, a girl everyone calls Scotty. But Scott Fitzgerald also had a new book to bolster his reputation, The Beautiful and Damned. Although it wasn't selling as well as expected, there was still enough money to spend exciting weeks and months almost anywhere. Long Island, the Riviera, Paris. Scott Fitzgerald showed up every so often in Paris during those wild, hectic years after World War I. Henry Wales, Paris correspondent of the Chicago Tribune. He usually didn't stay very long. He would appear suddenly from America, from London, from Italy, looking for old friends and excitement. One night, Scott and Zelda and Jed Kiley, a Chicago lad who got demobilized from the American Army after the war and ran a nightclub in Montparnasse, went up to Florence's cabaret in Montmartre. Chez Florence in the Rue Blanche was the most popular and most expensive joint in Paris in those days. Florence, an American colored girl, had the best band in Paris. Her husband, Palmer Jones, was a wizard on the piano. The other members of the orchestra were equally good. Chez Florence was not only a hangout for American tourists, it got a tremendous play from the wealthy French who were just getting initiated to jazz. It was full of dukes and duchesses and counts and countesses. The place was also popular with South Americans, Argentinians chiefly. Makoko, a handsome and wealthy lad from the Pampas, had a table reserved every night. That was the time he was squiring Kay Williams around. This particular soiree, we sat next to Makoko's table. He had half a dozen Argentines with him, and also George Carpentier, who fought Jack Dempsey for the heavyweight title. Well, one gent from the Argentine kept pushing his chair back against the back of Scott's chair. Scotty stood it for a while and then asked the man to be careful. But the fellow kept on leaning back and pushing against Scott. Finally, Scotty couldn't stand it any longer. He jammed his chair back hard and rammed the Argentinian against his table and upset three bottles of champagne. In less than a second, Chez Florence was the scene of a free-for-all like you see in the movies when the hero appears in the villain's saloon. The six Argentinians jumped over their table like bulls leaping out of the ring. They grabbed champagne bottles as weapons and started swinging. When the dust of battle finally settled, there was $500 worth of glassware broken, and a dozen parties had left the shambles and gone home leaving unpaid bills for champagne amounting to $200. Makoko, I must say, tried to calm his pals 
and yelled that he knew Scott and Kylie and me, and we didn't mean any harm. Carpentier, though, whom we counted on to help us, he knew all of us, too, he didn't raise a finger. He said afterward he thought it was a friendly fight and didn't want to interfere. Henry Wales remembers the Paris of the nightclubs. There was also another side of Paris that helped shape Scott Fitzgerald's career, a side represented, according to publisher Bennett Cerf, by Gertrude Stein. Fitzgerald himself said again and again that the best thing that happened to him during this period was meeting Miss Gertrude Stein and enlisting her interest in his work. Gertrude herself wrote in riddles that few readers could even pretend to understand. But the advice she gave other young writers often proved invaluable. Fitzgerald sat worshipfully at her feet, listening to her sage words and looking at the canvases that she insisted on buying from two poor, unknown painters named Matisse and Picasso. Even after Scott Fitzgerald was an established bestseller, he still sought Gertrude Stein's advice. When he finished The Great Gatsby, for instance, he was assailed by doubts of its merits and was almost ready to tear up the whole manuscript until she assured him that it was probably his greatest book and the one most likely to endure. Even then, he wanted to change the title. What do you think the result would be, he asked her, if I call this book Under the Red, White, and Blue? Miss Stein answered, fatal. True to Gertrude Stein's prediction, The Great Gatsby showed a maturity of form Fitzgerald had never before achieved, and it may well have been his best book. By the time Gatsby appeared in print, the Fitzgeralds were members of the international set, such as it was in those days. But in his heart, he remained tied to the Middle West of his youth. A sophisticated New Yorker looking through the fresh, naive eyes of a St. Paul, Minnesota youngster. One of my most vivid memories is of coming back west from prep school and later from college at Christmas time. Everett Sloan, reading from The Great Gatsby. Those who went farther than Chicago would gather in the old dim Union Station at six o'clock of a December evening with a few Chicago friends already caught up into their own holiday gaieties to bid them a hasty goodbye. I remember the fur coats of the girls returning from Miss This or That's and the chatter of frozen breath and the hands waving overhead as we caught sight of old acquaintances and the matchings of invitations. Are you going to the Ordways? the Herseys, the Schultzes, and the long green tickets clasped tight in our gloved hands. And last, the murky yellow cars of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad looking cheerful as Christmas itself on the tracks beside the gate. When we pulled out into the winter night and the real snow, our snow, began to stretch out beside us and twinkle against the windows and the dim lights of small Wisconsin stations moved by, a sharp, wild brace came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner through the cold vestibules, unutterably aware of our identity with this country for one strange hour before we melted indistinguishably into it again. That's my Middle West. Not the wheat or the prairies or the lost Swede towns, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth and the street lamps and sleigh bells in the frosty dark, and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows on the snow. I am part of that, a little solemn with the feel of those long winters, 
a little complacent from growing up in the Caraway House in a city where dwellings are still called through decades by a family's name. I see now that this has been a story of the West after all. Tom and Gatsby, Daisy and Jordan and I were all Westerners, and perhaps we possessed some deficiency in common which made us subtly unadaptable to Eastern life. Even when the East excited me most, even when I was most keenly aware of its superiority to the bored, sprawling, swollen towns beyond the Ohio with their interminable inquisitions which spared only the children and the very old, even then it had always for me a quality of distortion. West Egg especially still figures in my more fantastic dreams. I see it as a night scene by El Greco. A hundred houses at once conventional and grotesque crouching under a sullen, overhanging sky and a lusterless moon. In the foreground, four solemn men in dress suits are walking along the sidewalk with a stretcher on which lies a drunken woman in a white evening dress. Her hand, which dangles over the side, sparkles cold with jewels. Gravely, the men turn in at a house. The wrong house. But no one knows the woman's name. And no one cares. that glitter with the icy hardness of diamonds. But they didn't come easy, and you can almost bet they didn't come out like that in the first draft of The Great Gatsby. Once again, Judge Biggs. He had a certain phobia about letting anything go out on paper which was not his best work. Uh, Maxwell Perkins of Scribner's told me that right up to the very time that a manuscript went to publication, I don't mean when it was handed in in type form or longhand, but up to the time the book was actually put together, Fitzgerald was still sending in corrections by wire and letter and sometimes by telephone, which, of course, was an expensive proposition both for Fitzgerald and the, and the publisher. He was all the time trying to improve his manuscript as he worked on it. You find out by looking over his work the most elaborate outlining of characters. I can remember being uh, down at Great Neck when he was working on The Great Gatsby, and I think he must have had an outline of over 60 pages relating to the characters, what Jake Gatsby was like and what Daisy was like and what her husband were like, just exactly as if they were real people, and he was gathering notes for a biography. There's another attribute you frequently find in Scott Fitzgerald's works, the use of friends and acquaintances as characters in his stories. Lois Moran of the Movies and Television explains it this way. I suppose that was a conflict with Scott. The love of people, and yet this great urge to write. Consequently, he used all his friends in his books. <laughs> uh, lightly disguised. It was pretty easy to recognize everybody. I was in Tender as the Night, as Rosemary, and my mother was in it too. And Mother was very annoyed. She was only about 35 at the time. And Scott wrote about her and said, Rosemary's mother was a very charming woman with faded pink cheeks. And Mother said, Gee, my cheeks aren't faded in the least. <laughs> she was insulted. <laughs> uh, Rosemary was an accurate portrait of me at the age of 17, though the circumstances were changed. Uh, for instance, I'd never met Scott in Europe. We met in America. And the emotional content was perhaps lifted or built 
into a, a bigger thing. But on the whole, it was a very fine portrait, and I was kind of proud of it. Another friend who turned up as a leading character in Tender is the Night, the hero Dick Diver, as a matter of fact, and that was Gerald Murphy. It came as quite a surprise. We had no realization that he was really drawing on anything that he was doing or any of the people that he knew. He never gave you any sense of that. And you never had any sense that uh, he was looking for material or doing things because he thought maybe he was going to be able to write about them. And it was a great surprise to us. We couldn't help recognizing uh, the setting. And uh, I was amazed that he had noticed the things that he had one of the difficulties with the book, of course, was that he had the definite belief that my wife Sarah and I and uh, his wife Zelda and himself were a kind of parallel. That was one of the difficulties with the book because the first part of it has to do with us and then it shifts in the center to two characters supposedly the same, which are obviously... Scott uh, and, uh, and Zelda, and uh, it fell apart in the center. To my knowledge, he made eight drafts of that, and I can't help recalling that uh, my wife and I witnessed uh, his destruction of uh, what we were afraid was going to be the last draft, uh, where he went out in a boat and tore it to pieces and scattered it on the waters of the Mediterranean, and we were so afraid that uh, it uh, would not be rewritten. That was the seventh draft, but the eighth he did, and the eighth we have. Tender is the Night came out in 1934. It was written at a time of deep trouble. There was a growing money problem caused in part by high living, but that was almost incidental compared to Zelda's misfortunes. Beautiful, high-spirited Zelda had become ill. The doctor's diagnosis schizophrenia. Perhaps curable, perhaps not. Fitzgerald's biographer, Arthur Meisner. Perhaps the finest story Fitzgerald ever wrote, Babylon Revisited, is made out of the grief and guilt he felt for his wife Zelda's mental breakdown. Babylon Revisited was written in 1930, only a few months after this tragic breakdown had destroyed, permanently as it turned out, a relation which meant more to Fitzgerald than anything in his life. Because it came immediately out of the experience, the story is full of that purity and accuracy of feeling, which was Fitzgerald's kind of wisdom. In it, he says, family quarrels are bitter things. They don't go according to any rules. They're not like aches or wounds. They're more like splits in the skin that won't heal because there's not enough material. Quarrel the Fitzgeralds did. They loved each other much too intensely not to. And when they quarreled, they quarreled with a depth of feeling and an intimacy which Fitzgerald is trying to describe in Babylon Revisited. Studying their life together, you feel as if their anger and their love are simply different views of the same feeling. For the very things that made their deep intimacy possible made their quarreling inevitable. They were both gifted and enormously ambitious people, filled with confidence in their ability to conquer the world. They both believed in the possibility of living a life of sustained gaiety and delight and were prepared to settle for nothing less. As Zelda put it later when she knew better, we grew up founding our dreams on the infinite promises of American advertising, 
I still believe that one can learn to play the piano by mail and that mud will give you a perfect complexion. When Fitzgerald failed to become an immediate success in New York, Zelda temporarily broke their engagement, and Fitzgerald understood and admired her doing so, bitterly unhappy as it made him. Each of them was deeply dependent on the other. Again and again, Zelda pulled Fitzgerald back from the edge of alcoholism, and after he lost her, he was never quite able to pull himself back. Again and again, Fitzgerald saved Zelda from the bitter disappointment of failure by rewriting what she wrote, by using his influence to publicize her paintings, by finding outlets for her restless and very real talents. The difficulty was that each of them was too intelligent not to realize what the other was doing and too proud not to resent it. Worst of all, each understood the other's resentment and sympathized with it. Fitzgerald once sketched out a story in which the hero saves his wife a disastrous failure with a play by rewriting it for her at the last minute, only to have his wife hate him for it. Fitzgerald had actually rewritten a musical comedy called Scandalabra that Zelda wrote for the Vagabond Players in Baltimore, and this sketch for a story suggests what happened as a result. Yet in the end, the quarrels meant very little, or meant only love. When Fitzgerald finally lost his hope that Zelda would recover, I left my capacity for hoping, he said, on the little roads that led to Zelda's sanitarium. He wrote, Do you remember before keys turned in locks, when life was a close-up and not an occasional letter, that I hated to swim naked from the rocks while you liked absolutely nothing better? Still, stupid got with grief, I find. These are the only quarrels I can remember. And Zelda could only say, Oh, Dodo, Dodo, I love you anyway, even if there isn't any me or any love or even life. I love you. After this, the strain began to tell. Zelda's illness, alcohol, a growing difficulty in putting the right words on paper. It ended in what Fitzgerald termed emotional bankruptcy. You know, in the 1930s, he had what he called the crack-up. Screenwriter Edwin Justin Mayer. And this left an indelible stain on him. He believed firmly that he had had tuberculosis. His mental outlook became very strange, really. At 40, uh, he talked more or less like a very old man sometimes. Not always. Don't misunderstand me. He maintained his intellectual curiosity. But he would talk about people who had not been in the public eye for 20 years and would say, uh, what is so-and-so doing now? Somebody who really had been disappeared so long from their own field, that it puzzled you. It was as if he'd been slugged, as if he'd been hit over the head and had some sort of a lacunae. This might have been the end of the story for a lesser man, but Scott Fitzgerald, with his ability to live both within and without the social scene, put himself under his own microscope, made an almost impartial analysis of his crisis. It was published in Esquire as an essay titled The Crack-Up. As the twenties passed, with my own twenties marching a little ahead of them, my two juvenile regrets at not being big enough or good enough to play football in college and at not getting overseas during the war resolved themselves into childish waking dreams of imaginary heroism that were good enough to go to sleep on in restless nights. The big problems of life seemed to solve themselves, and if the business of fixing them was difficult it made one too tired to think of more general problems. 
Life ten years ago was largely a personal matter. I must hold in balance the sense of the futility of effort and the sense of the necessity to struggle, the conviction of the inevitability of failure, and still the determination to succeed. And more than these, the contradiction between the dead hand of the past and the high intentions of the future. If I could do this through the common ills, domestic, professional, and personal, then ego would continue as an arrow shot from nothingness to nothingness with such force that only gravity would bring it to earth at last. For 17 years, with a year of deliberate loafing and resting out in the center, things went on like that. With a new chore, only a nice prospect for the next day. I was living hard, too, but... Up to 49, it'll be all right, I said. I can count on that. For a man who's lived as I have, that's all you could ask. And then, ten years this side of 49, I suddenly realized that I had prematurely cracked. Cracked like an old plate. Sometimes, though, the cracked plate has to be retained in the pantry. Has to be kept in service as a household necessity. It can never again be warmed on the stove nor shuffled with the other plates in the dishpan. It will not be brought out for company, but it will do to hold crackers late at night or go into the icebox under leftovers. It was in this mood that Fitzgerald moved to a tourist court in Hollywood. His own debts, Zelda's hospital bills, and the bills for their daughter Scotty at college had to be paid. Screenwriting seemed the answer. The next great novel lay somewhere in the unplotted future. Again, Edwin Justin Mayer. I had not written a play in some years. I was in Hollywood. Scott lived right above me, and he'd been working very hard, and he came down to my uh, bungalow one night. I was working on a new play and working very hard, and uh, he came in with a glass full of straight gin, and I knew that uh, if I didn't get rid of him, I know that sounds... Uh, rather cruel today, and uh, but it didn't at the time. It seemed like a very good idea to get him out of my place as quickly as I could. I was working at night, and I wanted to continue working. And I tried to figure out how to get rid of him. And I wanted to work, so I finally figured out the way to get rid of him was to read him part of what I was writing. I thought he would go upstairs very quickly, but instead of that, he listened very grumbly for a few moments. Then he began to take an interest in what I was reading to him, and this suddenly presented a new problem. He suddenly became intense about it, commenting on what I was reading to him and being very nice about it. And then I, <laughs> I turned around and I used just the reverse tactics. I told him that he'd interrupted me and I just had to get back to work. And upon that, he immediately, because he was a writer himself, and as soon as I said that, he got up and left, to my great relief. And the next morning he came down to see me and he said, uh, when you started to read that to me, he said, my, my heart went into my boots. I couldn't think of anything less I wanted to hear than somebody, something somebody was writing. But then he became very charming about it and he flattered me by telling me how much he liked what he read and quoting it. And I always had a feeling, which was consolation to me, really, that I had something to do with the starting writing again. This episode, which was trivial in itself, had made him feel that he could uh, do the same thing. 
And he went back to writing The Last Tycoon, which, as you know, was his last and not completely finished book. There's another Hollywood writer who recalls The Last Tycoon, screenwriter and author Bud Schulberg. In 1939, Fitzgerald and I became, I think, pretty good friends. And I used to drop in to see him. He was living in a small apartment south of Sunset Boulevard then. And he was working very hard. I was just beginning to work on a novel myself, on a first novel, and I was beginning to see how much work went into it. And every so often, I'd go in to see him. And he had great enthusiasm for what he was doing. He wasn't working very fast, but he was working steadily, and he was working according to a very good plan. And it used to strike me then that many people, not all, because he had a few friends left, not too many, but he had a few. But most people thought of Fitzgerald at that time as someone who had shot his bolt and who had lived it up and had burned out his talent. Actually, I don't think he had burned out his talent at all. That This book was coming on very, very well. I only read little bits and pieces of it, so I didn't know honestly how well it was coming because I didn't read the part that was published until, I guess, about the last year of the war, 1945. But I was struck at the time by the artistry of what he was doing. I think The Last Tycoon would have been a great, really a great novel. I think it could have ranked with Tender as the Night. And it might have been more planned because he was, in many ways, in better shape, I think, had more control of his material than he did in those troubled, troubled years when he was doing Tender as the Night. The end came during the writing of Chapter 6 of The Last Tycoon, a sudden heart attack in 1940, just four days before Christmas. And later... Looking through his papers, someone found an unfinished poem, an epitaph of sorts for a man who had only begun to live again. Your books were in your desk, I guess, and some unfinished chaos in your head was dumped to nothing by the great janitress of destinies. You've been listening to an NBC biography in sound. In This Was F. Scott Fitzgerald, you heard Bud Schulberg, Judge John Biggs, Jr., Arthur Meisner, Malcolm Cowley, and others. Readings by Everett Sloan. This Was F. Scott Fitzgerald, edited by Bill Hill, has been an NBC News production under the supervision of Joseph O. Myers. For joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.